Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. <laughs> uh, we all need to laugh because if we don't laugh, we're going to cry. The Mets lose another series, another rubber game. I think this is the fifth straight rubber game they've lost. This time it's to the Philadelphia Phillies. This time it's in just epically brutal fashion. And I don't know about you, as I sat there watching the Mets build on their little 3-2 uh, to two lead and take a 6-3 lead when Pete hit the home run in the seventh, there was a part of me deep down that knew this is going to end in some kind of horrific way. I wasn't sure how, to be honest with you. Wasn't sure if it'd be the eighth inning. Wasn't sure if it'd be the ninth inning. I think my guess in the seventh inning was that we were going to get like a David Robertson meltdown. You know, David Robertson did just such a splendid job in game two of this series. Got a couple of big double plays. He called it the greatest day of his life. I think that was my kind of how is this going to go bad feel. And what's funny about that is we never even got the chance because Buck Showalter, uh, he made the mistake that I thought he learned from. Obviously not in the same spot. This isn't a winner-take-all wild card game, though it felt like it. I mean, every game this team plays as they creep closer and closer to the abyss feels like a must-win. But the New York Mets blew a game in the eighth inning. They allowed four runs on one hit, and they did it without their best reliever ever coming into the game. Now, I'll spend a little bit more time on that, but I want to be fair about this. Brett Beatty, who we all love, we all want him out there every single day, and I think his defense, for the most part, at the major league level has been solid. He done effed up. Now, let's call it like it is. We could spend 80% of this podcast ripping Buck and ripping the pitching and ripping Carrasco and ripping Billy Epler and ripping the bullpen and going through every bad thing about this team, and we probably will at some point. But Jeb Brigham comes into this game with bases loaded, nobody out, and what does he do? He gets Alec Bohm to ground into a routine double play. It is a 5-4-3 double play. And if you don't turn a double play, at the bare minimum, you're getting it out. And that play was an epic fail from beginning to end. Beatty gets to the baseball. He double clutches. It wasn't because he didn't have the ball in his hand. He double clutches, not because Jeff McNeil wasn't covering second. McNeil was there plenty of time. I have no idea why he double clutches. Then he makes the throw. It's not a perfect throw. It is a throw Jeff McNeil should catch, by the way. And for some reason, which I still can't figure out, the Mets are challenging it. There's nothing to challenge. Jeff McNeil dropped the baseball. Brett Beatty did not make a good throw. And instead of at the bare minimum, one out recorded, and it would have been a huge monstrous out at that point. Instead of that, instead of 6-4, first and third, one out, okay, a chance to get through it, it's 6-4 bases loaded, nobody out. So let's start right there when we talk about this epic meltdown. And we'll get to the other games in this series. We'll get to Buck. Plus, I think you'll enjoy this. My emails, the Rico Bronia emails that Pete and I get, were exploding as the game was melting down. So for a little comic relief towards the end of this pod, we'll read the emails as it was happening in live time. 
as the Mets blew this game on Sunday afternoon. But let's start with Beatty because he's got to make that play. And this is the problem with this team. Actually, there's a million problems with this team. But if you ask me to define what happened against the Philadelphia Phillies, it's like Keith Hernandez's words from a year ago came up and bit us all in the ass. Remember what Keith said? The Phillies are terrible with fundamentals. They're a bad defensive team. He doesn't want to watch them. Well, the New York Mets put on a display of pathetic defense over the course of three games, some of which were errors, some of which were not called errors, but a lot of bad defense. And Brett Beatty not making that play on the bum ground ball to third base, that was the exclamation point. Now, with all that said, it's still 6-4. The bases are loaded with one out. Jeff Brigham still has a chance to get through this inning. And he walks Brandon Marsh on a 3-2 pitch that was very, very, very close. He gets the huge strikeout of Cody Clemens. And then, and this is just, this is the thing that kills me. This is the... Of all the things that piss you off from game three, the Beatty error, Bucks mismanaging, how about Jeb Brigham hitting two guys back-to-back with two strikes right after the immortal Gary Cohen or Keith or Ron, somebody said it. Hey, look, they may lose this game, but you know Jeff Brigham is not afraid of the moment. Okay. <laughs> Boy, did he have fun with that moment. He hits back-to-back guys with two strikes, hit batman number one, tie game, hit batsman number two, Phillies take the lead. I mean, you can't make it up. And then, of course, of course, the great Vinny Natale comes in and gets out of it. I mean, bases loaded, one out, down a run. I'm thinking, all right, Nick Castellanos will just put us out of our misery. Bryce Harper will put us out of his misery. This actually made it worse. Because Castellano strikes out and Harper flies out. And so instead of the misery just being sucked out of us, we get a ninth inning tease only down a run. But the Philadelphia Phillies in the eighth inning put together a four-run, one-base hit, error, two-hit batsman kind of inning to take a 6-3 deficit and make it a 7-6 lead. And that's why I laugh. Because what are our options? Laugh, cry, everything in the middle? So I'm glad we got the Beatty thing out of the way because Beatty's got to make that play, and at minimum, you got to get it out. And to Beatty's credit, after the game, he stands there in front of the locker and says, put this game on me. Good, you're right. Put the game on you. A day earlier, the Mets are turning two double plays behind David Robertson, a big part of why they held on to win 4-2. to In Sunday's game, Brett Beatty takes a routine double play ball and Fs it up on two accounts. So, yes, thank you, Brett, for holding yourself accountable. And then you got Jeb Brigham hitting back-to-back guys with two strikes on Schwarber and two strikes on Trey Turner. And then you have the manager. And let's, this, let's rip this apart, I think, in a nice, neat, organized way. If David Robertson is available, and he was because he was warming up as the Mets were putting together their ill-fated rally in the ninth inning. If David Robertson is available, he needs to be one of the guys that comes into this game. Because as Buck has proven in his time here, and I appreciated it, sometimes the biggest out is not recorded in the ninth inning. Sometimes it's recorded in the eighth inning. So when the bases are loaded and there's nobody out, I don't care who's coming up in a 6-3 game, That's the moment to go to David Robertson. I'm telling you right now, that's the moment. You wanted to F around all day by getting anything out of Dominic Leone, by getting two innings out of Hartwig. You even tried Josh Walker to start the eighth inning. Fine. Okay, fine. I get all that. Not ripping all that. I have some questions about Carrasco coming out earlier, but we'll get to that later. But if David Robertson's available, How is he not used in a spot where the bases are loaded and nobody out? Now, let me give you a retort. Right off the top, you could say, but Evan, Jeff Brigham came in and got a double play ball. If David Robertson does that, like he did the night earlier, and Brett Beatty boots it, where does that leave you? Well, here's where that leaves you, because that very well could have happened. Where that leaves you is David Robertson, bases loaded, nobody out, up six to four. 
and probably not walking Brandon Marsh and probably not hitting Kyle Schwarber and probably not hitting Trey Turner. Now, maybe he melts down and gives up a grand slam. I don't know. But I'd rather go down with Robertson than Jeff Brigham. When Buck went to Brigham, here's what I thought. I thought, wow, okay, he's not going to Robertson. He's not available. That's what I thought. Now, we'll get to the argument of why aren't these guys available in a second. But if David Robertson's not available, fine. And I understand why he's going to who he's going to. But if he's available, you have to use him in that eighth inning. And what boggles my mind is that Buck has shown us in his time here that he'll use his best reliever in the eighth inning. He's done it routinely this season. He's done it routinely last season with Edwin Diaz. So what made this game different? Oh, well, who would pitch the ninth was his answer. Vinny Natale will pitch the ninth. Jeff Brangham will pitch the ninth. And by the way, if they blow it then, we're having a different discussion. Doesn't make everything okay, but then our discussion is different. Then we know, hey, he went to Robertson in the eighth inning to get the biggest outs. He couldn't have him throw 35 pitches on a back-to-back, and that's why he went to bring him. That's why he went to Natale. But instead, he loses this game, and he never goes to Robertson. Now, let me get to this, because this one pisses me off, too. The Mets are playing games that are monstrous. These games matter. They are not cruising in a race where, ah, we're playing for the 162. You can't play for the 162 when your season's over after 85. You know what I mean? You can't be thinking about a game in August when you got to win games in June right now because you're teetering on extinction. So please tell me this. Why was Adam Adovino not available to begin with? He's barely pitched in the last week. Yes, he pitched yesterday or Saturday, depending on when you're listening. And yes, he threw 25 pitches, whatever it was. But he didn't pitch the night before. And he didn't pitch the night before that. So I'll understand Brooks Rally. I'll get that one. I don't even get why Adovino wasn't available. And I don't want to make it seem like Adam Adovino is Eric Gagne in his prime. He's not. But remember who you were using in this game. You were using Leon and Hartwig and Walker and Natali and Brigham. And so as much as I may not trust Adam Adovino, he's a better option. And in a game... That was so damn important. And before you know it, they won't be important because they're going to be buried alive if they aren't already. You've got to find ways to win these games. So, in summary here, the first thing I'm ripping is Beatty's defense. The second thing I'm ripping is Jeff Brigham hitting two guys back-to-back. And then we get to the manager who managed the eighth inning in a clueless fashion. And then after the game, basically said, what do you want me to do? That was his attitude after the game. Ah, you know, what do you want me to tell you? What are other options that I have? I just laid out the other options. There were plenty of other options. How you doing, Pete? You feeling all right? Uh, no, I feel miserable right now. It, it is a... it. When I watched it happen, my heart sunk. My, my, my kids are watching. My, I finally got the kids to watch the game with me. Oh. You know? So it's like it's this is like the worst timing for everything to happen, and I sit there going, you know, you're right. You everything you just laid out was perfect. And my question to you is this: If you have a pitching staff that can't go past four innings, everyone needs to be available in the bullpen. Everyone needs to be available. It doesn't make a difference anymore. You have to win these freaking games. Well, you know what it it, it kind of reminded me of when. He pulled Carrasco after four innings. I understood it because, okay, third time around the batting order, Carrasco's numbers in the fourth and fifth innings are really, really bad. Uh, Trey Turner was already two for two. He was going to lead off the fifth inning. Now he's facing Castellanos and Harper again. So while I get, you know, not loving Carlos Carrasco third time around the order, if you have a short bullpen, and Buck knows this, we don't. If you are going to make Adam Adovino unavailable, if you know you're not going to be as aggressive as you've been in the past with David Robertson in the eighth inning, then don't you try to squeeze out a fifth inning out of Carlos Carrasco. Don't you say, you know what? The pitch count's only 78. He hasn't been great. No one's going to say Carrasco was great in this game. He was actually fortunate to get through the four innings, only allowing two runs. But because 
of the shortness of your bullpen, because of the fact that you're going to try to somehow get five innings out of your bullpen. And that's going to include names like Dominic Leone and Grant Hartwig and Jordan Walker, Josh Walker, not Jordan Walker. I'd love for him to be on our team. Doesn't that make you think maybe I should be more aggressive with cookie. And I'm not saying it would have worked out. Well, it may have worked out terribly. <laughs> Trust me. I get why you don't love Carrasco coming out for the fifth inning, but it also runs into this problem. If Carlos Carrasco, after 78 pitches, is coming out of games after four innings and allowing two runs, then how can he be a sustainable starting pitcher? Like, How could you run that guy out every five days when you have the bullpen that you have? So it was just a, a horrible mix that you're taking that quick hook on Carrasco, and then you're going to try to find 15 outs out of this bullpen. And the bullpen, for the most part, did a decent job. Like Dominic Leone comes in, walks the first two guys, and if it wasn't for, you know, basically Trey Turner running around the bases at a throwing error by Francisco Alvarez, he actually got out of that fifth inning. And Grant Hartwig did a great job getting through the sixth and seventh, helped out by a tremendous throw by Tommy Pham in the outfield. So they got something out of their bullpen to get those first nine outs, but then Josh Walker comes in, and he was abysmal. He is missing the strike zone right out the gate. You're up by three runs facing Bryce Harper. Even if he hits a ball 1,000 feet, you got to be aggressive. Bryson Stott, he walks. It was just a miserable performance by Josh Walker. And just, oh, God, the, this whole thing sucked. Oh. And, and that error was, was Narvaez, Narvaez, not, not oh, even what did Alvarez. I say? Did I say Alvarez? My apologies. Yeah. No, and it's okay. But but the reason why I point that out is because everyone's going to say, well, you know, the young kid's going to make the mistakes. I'm sorry, but the veterans are making just as many mistakes. Oh, yeah, dude, dude, it's the veterans. I know Beatty made the big error on Sunday, but how about the miscommunication? And we'll get to it when we talk about the previous games from Lindor and Pham on the fly ball, the left field. I mean, how bad was that in the opener of this series? But no, but you're right. It's Omar Narvaez. And I think what makes it worse on that Turner play is there was no reason to even throw. Trey Turner had stolen third base easily. It wasn't on Omar Narvaez. He stole third base against Dominic Leone. And then for some reason forces a throw to third and it goes in a left field. And that was another bad play by Beatty because Beatty should have knocked that ball down. Instead, he doesn't. And you basically hand the Phillies a cheap run. It was not Francisco Alvarez. The only thing I'll rip Francisco Alvarez for is that he's going through a massive batting slump. He pinch hit in this game. He struck out very meekly in the seventh inning with guys on base. And Francisco Alvarez is now four for his last 34. So he's really going through a tough time offensively. But no, that error was on Omar Narvaez. And that was the story of the whole weekend. Their defense sucked all weekend. And when your bullpen's not very good, and your rotation's not very good, and your offense is up and down, you cannot continue to make mistakes. And the reason why the Mets lost on Friday, the opener of this series, and the reason they lost on Sunday, the finale of this series, was their defense. And by the way, how much does Gary Cohen hate Buck Showalter? He really hates him. He ends the game with the call of, this is you know the most pathetic loss of the year, whatever he said, worst loss of the year. And then goes on to say, <laughs> Buck Showalter tried to not use his best relievers and it backfired. Like he threw it in on the, the closing call of this game. And I'm not sure why Gary hates Buck. I think it goes back further than when Met fans turned on Buck because I think he turned on him during that wild card series when he was getting on him for the, the questioning of the Joe Musgrove ear. But you think Met fans want Buck fired? Oh, my God. Gary Cohn may be the president of that club. And for everyone who wants him fired, after a loss like Sunday and a series like Sunday and the answers he gave after the game, I'd have no problem if you can't his ass. It ain't going to change anything. It's not going to fix the problems that run on this team. But if you do want to send the message at, you know, 45, 35 and 42 and just a pathetic loss in which they always seem to look so cruddy and unprepared uh fine and by the way i'll give you another area where the mets are unprepared another area where the mets make no sense so obviously they sent tyler mcgill down which we had pushed for and certainly his time was up david peterson is starting on tuesday david peterson has not pitched well in triple a he is not joey lucchese has joey lucchese has been tremendous since he was demoted to triple a 
So a natural question would be, why Peterson and not Lucchese? Because these brainiacs, the New York Mets, had Joey Lucchese start three days ago or two days ago. I think it was Friday. So he would not be able to start on Tuesday because he wouldn't have his regular rest. So this just boggles my mind. You know Tyler Morgales pitched like crap. You know this already. Wednesday afternoon, as he's getting bombed by the Astros, this organization doesn't have the foresight to say, hey, maybe we should hold off on starting Luke Casey, or maybe we throw him for an inning or two because there's a really good chance that the following week may come around and we, we may want him in the major leagues. This brain-dead organization doesn't think about that. Instead, they're going to promote the guy who least deserves to be promoted. You want to promote Mike Vassell over David Peterson, I'm good with it. You want to vote Joey Lucchese over David Peterson, of course, he definitely deserves it. But instead, this unprepared organization, and that's the biggest knock that would really hurt Buck, because Buck's always so prepared. He's prepared about everything. Yeah, prepared my ass. This organization was so unprepared for the possibility that they may need a starter on Tuesday that they're forced to have to pitch David Peterson and not Joey Lucchese, who deserves to make that start. That's the ass-backwards organization we're looking at. And Billy Epler should not be exempt because this is the garbage bullpen at the disposal of Buck Showalter. Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives we're consumed by all the what if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun if you're like us then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass or play call each week on alternate routes we'll take a flashpoint in sports break down what actually happened then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused follow alternate routes on the wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts you can listen early and ad free right now by joining wondery plus Old man winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, old man winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. But here's what really boggles me. Let's go back to Friday night. The Mets open up this series against the Philadelphia Phillies. It's Kodai Senga against Taiwan Walker. And right out of the gate, off an off day. The Mets had an off day after losing two out of three to the Houston Astros. They're in Philadelphia. They're well-rested. Huge game. Huge series. They've played so well against the Phillies. Maybe this is the series that'll turn them around. And five pitches in. Brandon Nimmo drops a fly ball in center field. Flat out drops a fly ball in center field. Is that on Buck Showalter? I have no idea. Is that on the coaching staff? I have no idea. It's probably just on Brandon Nimmo. But when you continue to see a team that comes out flat and is always trailing in the first inning, doesn't that reek of a team that's unprepared? Doesn't it? Doesn't it feel that way? Look, I know at the end of the day, it's only on Brandon Nimmo for dropping a fly ball. It's only on Brett Beatty for not fielding a ground ball and turning a double player, at least getting it out. But when a team continues to make brutal mistake after brutal mistake after brutal mistake, and a team continues to be trailing immediately into a game, isn't that kind of a sign of a team that's unprepared? 
So Brandon Nimmo drops a pop-up. If that's not bad enough, what a tone setter for this series. Kyle Schwarber, it's a fly ball to center field, and Brandon Nimmo can't catch the effing ball. Kodai Senga does what he does. He walks a guy. He throws a wild pitch. He's set up in a real tough spot, and he strikes out Nick Castellanos. Here comes ballsy Kodai Senga, and then he gets Bryce Harper to pop up in the infield. How great is this? How great is this? Little pop-up. Little easy pop-up. All set to go. And Tommy Pham and Francisco Lindor have no earthly idea what's happening. Two veteran players have no idea how to communicate on the easiest pop-up to short left field you'll ever see. Let it sink in that that play, that play cost the New York Mets a baseball game. Because it did. I get the offense sucked outside of the Brandon Nimmo home run. So you could put it on the offense. But Kodai Senga pitched a hell of a baseball game and got screwed by his shoddy defense right off the gate. A drop pop-up and then a pop-up that's not called an error. But everybody knows it's a mental error between Francisco Lindor and Tommy Pham. And he fights through it. He gives up the second run on a sacrifice fly. Of course, the Met offense does nothing. And it was a frustrating nothing. Like, there's nothing, and then there's frustrating nothings. They get a leadoff double by Pete Alonso in the second on a ball that I thought was out. And with Vogelbach and Pham and McNeil, they get nothing. Outside of that Nimmo home run in the third inning, the Met offense got absolutely mowed down by Taiwan Walker and Gregory Soto and Jose Alvarado and Craig Kimbrell. And then you've got more bad defense because how could, how could there not be bad defense? Sixth inning, two on. There's a little pop-up by Brandon Marsh. I think that was the one that was the miscommunication, actually. Now that I think about it, I think the miscommunication between Lindor and Pham was actually in the sixth inning, not in the first inning. I think the first inning was just like a bloop single by Bryce Harper, if memory serves correct. I'm sorry. I apologize. I get all my brain-dead baseball confused. I apologize, but Brandon Marsh was the one who hit that little pop-up where Tommy Pham and Francisco Lindor couldn't figure out who the hell was going to catch it. And then Trey Turner with the back-breaking two-run single. Uh, And a game that was close, a game that was two-to-one, a game that ah, maybe the Mets could fight back late, turns into an ugly five-to-one loss. And it was because of bad defense, because of Brandon Nemo dropping a pop-up, because of the miscommunication between Pham and Lindor. I think Jeff McNeil made a great play in this game, turning a double play. Good. It's the only good thing Jeff McNeil's done in a month. The guy can't hit. The guy's looking to lay down bunts. The guy can't catch a throw to second base by Brett Beatty in the finale of this series. Just an awful game one loss. But that's what they do. The offense disappears for eight out of nine innings. Their defense sucks. And they give up the back-breaking hit when they can't afford to give up the back-breaking hit. The Trey Turner single off Jeff Brigham. Just an awful game one loss. They do bounce back in game two. And look, we'll, we'll give Max Scherzer credit. Max Scherzer battled. He threw a ton of pitches. He came out to pitch the sixth inning after begging Buck to come out and let him start the sixth. And he did. Got a big double play of Alec Bowman. Pitched a hell of a game. And the Met offense did just enough. Just enough. Starling Marte hit a home run. They get another big hit by Tommy Pham. And the Mets win a baseball game. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Sometimes the wins are just setups for the brutal losses. The wins are just a setup for the absolute kick in the balls. And let me get to Jeff McNeil, because Jeff McNeil has almost escaped some of the criticism. His batting average is sinking like a stone. He took a meek 0 for 3 on Friday. He didn't play Saturday because he had some kind of wrist issue. He goes 0 for 4 on Sunday, including dropping that ball from Beatty. But McNeil did something in this game that showed me, boy, he has zero faith in himself. In the seventh inning of the finale of this series, the Mets had just scored a run on the Alonzo home run. They've opened up a 6-3 lead. They have first and second, nobody out, and Jeff McNeil is up. And Jeff McNeil twice tried to lay down a bunt. Was that a good baseball play? I'll tell you why, to me, it's not a good baseball play. It's not a good baseball play because you've got the bottom of the order coming up. You're facing a tough lefty and Jose Alvarado, but the guy on deck 
is a rookie left-handed hitter in Brett Beatty. Now, Beatty has had a good offensive game so far, but still, are you really giving an out away to then hand the at-bat to Brett Beatty, a rookie left-handed hitter who's hitting about 240? And then after that, is your left-handed catcher? Now, he would be a pinch hit for, but he's getting pinch hit for a guy who's in a four for 33 slump. So when you think about it that way, yeah, you're advancing guys and you're setting up second and third one out, but are you really doing it for your better hitters? Are you really doing it in an ideal situation? You're doing it for two left-handed hitters. And it shows you, I think, where McNeil's confidence is. If Jeff McNeil is playing like last year, if he's batting title McNeil, is he giving up an out to set up second and third one out for the eighth and ninth hitters? No way. So instead, after striking out twice earlier in this game against Zach Wheeler, Jeff McNeil is laying down a bunt. And while he got the job done and he advanced the runners, like I said earlier, he set up second and third one out for a rookie left-hand hitter, Brett Beatty, who looked completely overmatched and struck out. And for Omar Narvaez, who got pinch hit for by Francisco Alvarez, who's in a four for 33 slump. So Jeff McNeil not only went 0 for 7 in this series and played crappy defense, he also gave himself up in the seventh inning and admitted to the world, I don't have any confidence, so I'm going to give myself up and just hand it over to the eighth and ninth hitters. I am generally not an anti-bunt kind of guy. Sometimes I like a good sacrifice bunt, but I think it showed a lot about McNeil's lack of confidence right now. And that's a problem. There are a lot of things wrong with this team. By no means is Jeff McNeil issue number one, but Jeff McNeil's batting average is dipping very, very low, and he's starting to look like 2021 Jeff McNeil, and that's scary. And that's right off giving him that big contract extension. And now I don't give a rat's ass if Lindor gives him a car or not. The hell does he deserve a car in his 258 batting average and his 690 OPS? He's been terrible. We have to call it like it is. Guy's had an awful year. Lindor and Alonzo, on the other hand, they both hit home runs. Pete's got 24. He now has 56 RBIs. So Alonzo, despite missing that week and a half, is on pace for a 51-20 season, which is absurd. Lindor hit a home run. He's on pace for a 3,100 season, despite the low batting average and the low OPS. So the New York Mets are swooning in June. They have not won a series in what feels like forever. They have now dropped seven games under 500. They are burying themselves day by day by day. Forget the division in the National League wildcard race. And all we can do is scream, yell, and complain (laughs) and demand people be fired. Now, they did trade Eduardo Escobar in the middle of this week. They did that, I think it was on Friday night during the Apple TV game. All of a sudden, Wayne Randazzo told us Eduardo Escobar was trading. I'll give you some quick thoughts on the trade, and then we'll go through the emails as it was happening during the Met meltdown and more thoughts as we move ahead. <clears throat> but they trade Escobar to the Angels. They get back Coleman Crow, a 22-year-old pitching prospect, and Landon Marceau, I think is how you pronounce it, a 23-year-old pitching prospect. Neither of these guys will help the team now. I have no idea if neither of these guys or either of these guys are going to be big contributors ever for this team. I know Landon Marneau had bad numbers at Double uh, A, had a four eight eight ERA at Double A, and has already made his Met debut and has struggled. So I think it's one of those projects. We'll see if they can turn him around and he can kind of develop. He's only twenty three years old. Coleman Crow had four really good starts at Double A, but has been on the injured list since April. And he's only 22 years old. So I I think without knowing if Crow or Marceau are going to be anything, it's a positive only because Escobar really had no role on this team. And the fact that Cohen paid for his salary to increase the kind of prospect return they would get is a really good sign because that's going to probably have to be how the Mets get any prospects before the trade deadline because they are appearing like sellers. I mean, that's just... Let's all have that kind. I mean, I know a lot can change, and I said that to you four days ago, Pete, but we are well on the monorail to selling, okay? We're going really fast towards that area. 
but but think about this is this is what pisses me off. Like, so you trade Escobar, that's fine. You pay some his salary, that's fine. You get two prospects that back, I guess, that's fine. One of them's injured, so the other guy is kind of crappy already, as we said. Okay, fine. So then who do you call up? Danny freaking Mendick. I mean, the pulse of this team, the pulse of the, the, the people making the decisions on this team, so wrong. Why do you need two guys like Luis Guillorme? You don't. You have young kids that are that are. Vientos went back down to AAA and he's hitting again. Like you're telling me, you can't bring up a better guy than Danny Mendick because they're telling us that Mark Vientos won't play. That's what they're telling us. That's why Danny Mendick came up. Danny Mendick came up because he's a utility player, like you said, similar to Luis Guillorme, and Buck Showalter has zero interest in playing Mark Vientos. And right now, where would he play him? I mean, Tommy Pham has deserved to play. I don't think we're at the point of the season where you just only play young guys. We'll we'll get there soon when the season's over, over. Right now, it's over. We're not at over, over. We'll get there soon enough. I think at that point is when you probably trade a guy like Tommy Pham so he's not even on the roster and you only play young guys. But the reason they called up Mendick when they traded Escobar was that exact reason. That, okay, they'll call up Vientos, and then what are they going to do, Pete? They're going to do the same thing they did for a month. He'll never be in the lineup, and all we'll do is complain about it. And he won't have a chance to get better because he's never playing. Am I wrong? You're not wrong, but, I mean, again, you have Mauricio that's an option too. You have other guys that are options over some of the players that you're using right now. And, again, the, the veterans are have not been flawless. I'm sorry, Mark Hanna is not looking great out there anymore. I mean, we need to say oh. goodbye to him too. There's a lot of people, and, and real quick too, how about trade for someone with an arm that you could use now because the bullpen is crap? Yeah. Well, I, I think with the Escobar trade, that was probably as much as they're going to get. I mean, we're talking about a guy in the final year of his deal, a guy who's had a bad year this year, who did not have a great year last year till September. And considering the Mets paid down everything, and the Angels were a – I don't want to call them a desperate team, but clearly they were looking to upgrade at third base with the injuries that they've had. And they traded for two third basemen within two days of each other. Escobar and Mustakas. It's probably the most they could get. I don't think they were getting anything more for Eduardo Escobar. But I think once August 1st rolls around, assuming this season continues in the horrific direction it's going in, Mauricio and Vientos are going to be up here playing every day. I mean, we're not we're not going to see veterans playing, uh, but that that's where we're headed. Now, they're not going to do that now on June 26th, even though it feels that way. But that's the monorail trip we're on our way towards. And let me get to some of your emails uh, here. And, of course, you can email us to ricob at gmail.com. ST writes, and this is from Sam, Sam from Dubai is ST. Sam from Dubai. How about that? Hey, guys, I'm writing this in the bottom of the third inning. The game is now tied at two. A loss is a sure thing today. <laughs> Did you guys notice how Starling Marte gave up on the play after he missed the catch on the Sosa triple? Gary said it looked like Marte was disoriented. He didn't his head, he didn't hit his head against the wall. There's no way he got disoriented. He just gave up on the play. I think this play clearly shows this team doesn't care anymore. So that was in the bottom of the third inning. Edmundo Sosa hit a fly ball to right field. And I think this fits in the bad defense column. It won't go down as an error, but it's a play Marte should make, I think. And it's a play he makes last year. It's a fly ball to deep right field. He gets confused. He's on the warning track. He jumps. He misses it. And it took him forever to then get the baseball back in. I thought it was going to be an inside the park home run. Nobody was backing him up. And it led to a leadoff triple. And of course, the Phillies would eventually score that run on an RBI single by Trey Turner. Uh, I don't know if he gave up on the play, but I thought it was a bad defensive play. I think it was a play that he probably should make. And there was no one backing him up, which probably was because Nimmo was too far over, would be my assumption that Nimmo was probably covering Sosa or playing a more shaded, a little bit more towards left. So there probably wasn't enough time for him to get back. But yeah, I'll tell you this, watching this live, Mets are up two to one at the time. That was the run that tied the game up. That was another one of those plays that I agree with Sam. It made me think we're losing this game because <laughs> they give Carrasco the lead on a huge hit by Pete Alonso. And this triple was the second pitch of the third inning. It's like, here's the lead, Carlos. All right, I'm going to immediately give it back. Ben Guerrero writes, I just discovered your podcast earlier this season, and I really enjoy listening to it. 
I agree with most about what you say about the team so far. I'm a longtime Met fan, and it has been a very disappointing season so far when expectations were so high. I had two observations through the third inning. If you're going to put Vogel back in the lineup, why is he batting fifth? He should be batting eighth at best. Pham, Beatty, and McNeil are all better hitters. Is Vogie's Buck illegitimate son? I don't know how else, how else to explain Buck's obsession with Vogie. Uh, let me just respond to that. Vogelback, despite a very off game on Sunday, he was 0 for 3 with two strikeouts, has been a little bit better. And he wasn't great in this series. He took an 0 for on Friday, but he actually was starting to come out of his shell. My big issue with, with Vogelback batting fifth is that that's a spot in the order you're likely going to pinch hit for. And so you got to keep that in mind that the guy protecting Alonzo to start the game may not be the guy protecting Alonzo later in the game. And in this case, it was Mark Hanna. And by the way, that does remind me of something. I want to go back to Friday night. Thank you. And I'll finish the rest of your email, uh, Ben, I promise you. But you just hit something with me. Friday night, the Mets are facing Jose Alvarado in the, no, no, Gregory Soto in the seventh inning. Left-handed pitcher. The Mets are now trailing in this game by a score of 5-1. to one. Daniel Vogelback leads off the seventh inning against Gregory Soto. You've got your full bench. You've got Marcana. Actually, you only have Marcana. I, I should be fair about this. You only have Marcana because Eduardo Escobar was traded. So your one right-handed bat is Marcana. You got one bullet. He lets Vogelback hit, even though Vogelback is the most automatic out against left-handed pitching you'll ever see. Trust me, look it up. If I'm not mistaken, I think he's like a 130 hitter against lefties. Abysmal. So he lets Vogelback face Soto, strikes out on three pitches, has no shot, no surprise. In the eighth inning, Rob Thompson goes to another lefty, Jose Alvarado, with one out of nobody on Brett Beatty is due up. He pinch hits for Beatty with Mark Hanna. So let me get this straight. You got one right-handed bullet off the bench. You've got Vogelback and you've got Beatty as your left-handed hitters, who I guess are candidates to be pinch hit for. You don't pinch hit for Vogelbach, who has, I mean, I don't know if he's ever gotten a career hit against the lefty. He's that bad against lefties that he is, he, he may never have a career hit. I'm exaggerating, but you get my point. But you pinch hit for Beatty, who's actually got, I think, a higher batting average against lefties than righties this season? Like, how did that make any sense? 5-1 game. Apple TV Plus, 98% of the audience probably wasn't watching at that point. But Buck, you're not getting away with this from me. Because I was a sucker watching Apple TV on Friday. I got a ton of issues with Apple TV. Don't get me started on that. I'll save that for later. But how the hell do you pinch hit for Beatty and not Vogelback? Anyhow, let me finish this guy's email. Is Go ahead. Real, you have to say, real, Pete? Yeah, because is this analytics getting the best of Buck and the Mets? Or is Buck just being too stubborn and not allowing no, no. his better player to hit? What analytic would tell you Vogelback <laughs> should face a lefty? It's not analytics. <laughs> the analytics would tell you to get his fat ass on the bench against the lefty. That's not analytics. Mean, trust me, there's no number. And I, and I defy anybody. You go look it up and try to find me. Find me a number that says Daniel Vogelback facing Gregory Soto is better then Mark Hanna, or Mark Hanna pinch hitting for Beatty. I forget it. Whatever. You know what I mean? Like, why? No. Analytics. There's no analytic. Anyhow, Ben goes on to say, my second observation is Marte running around in circles after he couldn't catch the fly ball near the fence. Did he just expect Nimmo to come all the way over from center field to pick up the ball? Hey, Marte, if you miss the catch, go after the effing ball and throw it to McNeil. Instead, he runs around like he's drunk with no urgency to get the ball into the infield. This help explains why the Mets are not a good team right now. So look at that. Back-to-back emails, Pete, within uh, about 20 minutes of each other, complaining about the same thing. Starling Marte trying to catch a fly ball in right field. And this is before the eighth inning. Well wait, before wait. the eighth inning. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> David from New Jersey writes, I'm watching the Sunday game, and in like most RBI situations with Lindor, he strikes out. Excuse me. He comes up with the bases loaded, and he strikes out. 
He comes up with no one on and hits a home run. And then in the sixth inning, runners on surprise, he strikes out. Another example I remember vividly from earlier this year, I believe it was the walk-off home run by Pete. He came up right before and struck out. I don't expect any player to get a hit every time up, but I feel like I'm seeing him strike out in big spots more than coming through. What do you think, David? Um, Well, obviously in this spot, you're right. I mean, Pete Alonso bailed him out. Like, I can't, uh, you know, ignore that. I think that uh, Lindor has still had clutch moments this season. Uh, If you look at his numbers with runners in scoring position, they are pretty damn good. They're better than his numbers with nobody on base. But yeah, I mean, I think it's easy for our mind to find certain moments that jump out at you and say he wasn't clutch here. And certainly in the finale of this series, you're right about that. No, you could absolutely find that. The big one was the third inning. He comes up in a big RBI spot and he strikes out rather meekly. And then Alonzo gets that bloop two run single. It was a big moment in this game. I still think Lindor has been more clutch than he hasn't been. I mean, look, he hasn't gotten a lot of hits this season, but he's driven in 52 runs and he's hit 15 home runs. So I know that's a, it's very, there's no stat that will back up how you feel about a guy's clutchness. I mean, certainly you could look two outs, runners in scoring position. You could look late and close. You could kind of find the stat you want to look at, but watching him every day, I think he's been, I guess I would define it now as mildly clutch would be the way I would define it. I don't think he's been Mr. Clutch by any stretch, but I also don't think he's been a dog in every big opportunity. So I I looked up the stats last night because I did a show in the morning. So I I wanted to to give this piece to Francisco Lindor because everyone kills him because everyone's continuing to kill him. His at-bats with nobody on, this was uh, before the game today. With nobody on, his 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 batting average is like 180. His OPS is like 660 or something like that. It's not very good. Seven home runs, seven RBIs, whatever. <laughs> Runners in scoring position. His batting average jumps to 288. His OPS goes up to close to 900. He's only got three home runs but 34 RBIs. So in 66 at-bats, which means that, you know, I, it's not consistent, but he's getting bigger hits and bigger moments. And that's it's when no one's on base, he seems to be slacking. That's his biggest flaw of the season. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. You can look at all his splits, and depending on if you want to be pro-Lindor or anti-Lindor, you could expose which ones. Like, So, for example, if I wanted to be pro-Lindor, I, I quote some of the stats you mentioned, his runners in scoring position stats. I'd also bring out two outs with runners in scoring position, 875 OPS. If I wanted to be a dick, I'd say his late and close stats are terrible. 128, 440 OPS. Um, that jumps out at you as bad. When they are, uh, let's say, with their, when they're within a run, he's hitting 205 with a 706 OPS. In a tie game, 172 with a 603 OPS. So there are some bad numbers when you look closer. But his numbers in high leverage situations, 286 batting average, 1,074 OPS. So it's... It's almost like however you want to frame the argument, you could kind of put the numbers out there to make your side look better. That's why I feel even better about saying he's been mildly clutch. Like, I feel there have been some clutch moments. There have been some unclutch moments. I think if you're making a list of things wrong with this team, I don't think he's in the top five. Doesn't mean he's having the greatest season in the world. It just means if you're making that list of why this team is seven games under 500, I don't think Francisco Lindor's season would be in the top five. It'd be up there at some point. But right now, I think Jeff McNeil's a bigger problem. Am I wrong? I mean, let's look overall. Jeff McNeil's a much bigger problem offensively than Francisco Lindor. And if the answer to that is, well, but Lindor makes a lot of money, that's irrelevant. Like once we get to this part of the season and we're looking at why a team is winning and why a team is losing, I'm not breaking down how much money they make. I'm breaking down what I need from them. Like, Jeff McNeil won a batting title last year. Jeff McNeil was Mr. Clutch last year. You talk about who you want up in a big spot, that answer was Jeff McNeil. And with Scherzer and Verlander, it's not the money money. It's that they're supposed to be their two best pitchers. That's the issue. More than, well, it's $42.5 million. Another thing that I can't stand anymore, too, is the fact that people are blaming the season going downhill because Edwin Diaz isn't around. And I got to stop with that. And I need people to stop with that because 
Let's be serious. The Mets are losing games in the fourth, fifth, sixth inning. They're not going to get to Edwin Diaz. So that right, has, but, that narrative's got to be gone. Okay, so there's a lot of games they would have lost and wouldn't have been impacted if Edwin Diaz was here. But game three of this three-game series against the Philadelphia Phillies, do they win the game if Edwin Diaz is here? Do they win that game if they have more bullpen depth? Do they win that game if, hey, I can use David Robertson in the eighth inning? So there are games that would have absolutely been impacted if they had a deeper bullpen. Because having Edwin Diaz would have meant a deeper bullpen. So, yeah, there's plenty of games we can point to and say, that wouldn't have saved Scherzer, or that wouldn't have changed Verlander, or Carrasco getting knocked out in the third or fourth inning, or Tyler McGill sucking. Absolutely. But there's a lot of things that would have turned seven games under 500 into something better. How about the fact that when they score six runs in a game, they're a 500 team. That, that is unbelievable. Unbelievable. They are, I think it's 13 and 12 when they score six runs in a game. 13 and 12 when you score six runs in a game? Like that, that is, oh my God. Dustin Healy writes, Brandon Marsh. See, we're doing this live email, so you'll see where we are in the game now. Dustin writes, Brandon Marsh just pulled what would have been a grand slam home run foul. Still. This season is hopeless if they don't win this game. If they lose, it's time to trade every single veteran we can, bring back up Vientos, bring up Mauricio and Matthew Allen. Well, Matthew Allen ain't coming up. Can't believe this team has been such a disgrace this year. Brandon Marsh almost at a grand slam. He then drew a walk. That made it a one-run game. Two batters later, hit by pitch, hit by pitch. <laughs> Steven Berger writes, can you explain to me how with the bases loaded and nobody out in the eighth inning, Buck just went to Jeff Brigham instead of David Robertson? <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Isn't this a situation where you want your best reliever on the mound? I have loved that Buck has been willing to use his closer in the highest leverage situations in the past, but I have no idea why he didn't do it today. Where's the desperation? When is the last time the Mets won a series? I feel like the fans want the Mets to win more than Buck does. I've been a Buck defender until very recently, but if the Mets blow this game, this is the final nail in the coffin for me. It's time for Buck to go. Buck lost a lot of people on Sunday afternoon. He lost me. Now, what does that mean? It means fine, get rid of him. That's where I'm at. Fine, get rid of him. Fine. He's had a horrible season managing this team. But I'm also not under the illusion that if the Mets listen to fine, get rid of them, everything's going to change. Casey Manning writes, Buck is sabotaging this team. This old, senile, useless waste of space. Absolutely. I shouldn't have read that. That's mean. He refuses to try <laughs> to try to win. He gets lucky by using a rookie for two scoreless, then gets freaking cute again and goes with another rookie. He should be ashamed. Sometimes you have to push your guys. Brigham was dreadful, but at least give him a clean inning and go from there. Or better yet, use a high leverage guy for God's sake. Any of them. He doesn't care about winning. He just wants to be smarter than everybody else. And guess what? You're wrong every goddamn time. We deserve better than this. I've been calling it for weeks. Can him now. Hmm. Clayton writes, I just vomited. I want everybody gone. The manager pulls our starter after four innings, knowing he doesn't have his guys in the pen. Indefensible. The GM builds this bleep bullpen with an unlimited payroll. Indefensible. Joey Cora coaches the infield. Really? Good. Get rid of his ass, too. Jeremy Hefner, how bad has this staff been? Get rid of all of them. Boy, we're on fire now. Peter writes, I know it's a broken record, but bad teams find ways to lose. Today, Sunday, watching the bullpen blow it, I'm putting this on Buck. They have an off day tomorrow. They don't. They actually play tomorrow. Sorry about that, Peter. Why are Adovino and Robinson not in? Buck is managing like he wants to be fired. I feel like he makes moves at times just to tell us to go F ourselves. He knows best. <laughs> oh, that makes me laugh. He can't do it with Escobar over Beatty anymore, but let's see how many times he goes with Canna or Giorme over Beatty. Bring David Stearns, please. If I could set my iPhone with tickets on fire, I would. I'm just feeling completely checked out. Justin writes, fire Buck Showalter. 
I've had it with this manager. Today's bullpen management against the Phillies is as putrid as I've ever seen. Robertson got five outs on Saturday and only 13 pitches. Brooks Raley, where is he? The Mets shouldn't be trying to protect a three-run lead with Josh Walker and Jeff Brigham. Uh, six outs away, another loss when scoring six runs is unacceptable. People are very pissed off. I feel you. Uh, should I keep reading this? This is so depressing. It's like I'm, it's like I'm reliving the uh, the eighth inning all over again. Uh. So, so I put a Twitter poll out while we just started this podcast just to get like a quick feel. Um, it was a stupid one, but a poll for the Rico Bronya podcast. Who needs to be gone first? And it was Buck Showalter, Billy Epler, Scherzer, and Ver- Verlander or other. And 45% said Epler. Which, again, that's not going to happen during the season. Showalter, 42%. And then a lot of others were Hefner, Chavez, Hinsky, a lot, a lot of Hefners because I think that they're just furious with how the pitching has gone. Yeah, I, we are at the point now where you've got to do something. And I know a lot of voices were saying that a few weeks ago. A lot of my friends were saying they got to fire somebody. You got to do something because the whole wait and see, it's a long season thing. It's it's late June. Like we're a week and a half away from the 4th of July. And, you know, I could sit here and look at the 1973 Mets game logs to try to talk myself into a miracle comeback. But they have buried themselves. And this is the kind of loss, the loss on Sunday, even the loss on Friday to a degree, without bad they were defensively. Those are the kinds of losses where some kind of change has to happen. And firing Jeremy Hefner, again, is probably not going to fix everything. Firing Buck Showalter is not going to fix everything. I don't think there's any move they can make that's going to fix anything. But you've got to try something. The ship is sinking. And right now, the attitude basically is, well, it's a long season. We'll be fine. Yeah, don't worry about it. We'll be okay. They got four games coming up against the Brewers. They got three games against the Giants. These are two teams that they're going to have to jump. Basically, they got to jump everybody in the National League when you take a look at the standings. I I could tell you they got to win three out of four and two out of three, but this team hasn't won a series in what feels like forever. I'm going back on this. The last time they won a series was the sweep of the Philadelphia Phillies. That was the last time. And that's you know, a million years ago. That was the end of May. So they have gone this entire month of June, swept by the Blue Jays, swept by the Braves, lost two out of three to the Pirates, split against the Yankees, lost two out of three to the Cardinals, two out of three to the Astros, two out of three to the Phillies. If they don't win three or four against the Brewers, they will go an entire month without winning a series. An entire month. And these rubber games, they have now lost five consecutive rubber games of a three-game series. It is just putrid. It's just pathetic. And, oh, by the way, David Peterson's going to start on Tuesday. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And here's another thing, too, because you talk about how little too little too too late. I mean, how about Buck Showalter finally getting kicked out of a game in the top of the ninth when – it didn't make a difference. Like the game had already been lost. There's other games where it would have been more important for him to step up and just blow up and get kicked out. Instead, he did it right then and there. The team is done. The team is flat. The team is dead for today. Way to yeah, use your Yeah, he got ejected on that Canna strikeout. And by the way, I mean, Canna didn't swing. So I appreciate that Buck was angry and Canna was angry. It was annoying that ba- Bacchus, whatever his name is, the home plate umpire, didn't just check at first base. But... Yeah, I think that ejection in the ninth inning after the epic meltdown, it was a little too little too late. You are right about that. I do appreciate everybody else who has emailed us because there's like tons we didn't get to. But I got to get to this one. Emmanuel writes, I took my five-year-old son to the game today, Sunday. We had Mets gear on and a Philly fan started taunting me when Marte dropped the ball in the third, to which I responded, yep, they suck. Luckily, a bunch of Philly fans in the section stuck up for me and my son, and we were all pretty friendly after that. That same Philly fan was getting down, but I told him when the top of the fifth started, have no fear. Our bullpen will not hold up for five innings. I said, mark my words, the Phillies are winning this game. I believed it so much that I could have bet on it, but couldn't because I was in Pennsylvania. (laughs) Yeah, I guess they still don't have uh, sports betting on the app. 
Anyway, this bullpen is trash. I was a buck defender for the longest time, but I can't anymore. We need to clean a clean house. Thanks, Emmanuel from Brooklyn. I think Buck has lost any of his last defenders with this game. This Sunday game is a fireable game. And now it's about what do they do? Will Steve Cohen do anything? Will Billy Epler do anything? Will Billy Epler try to meet the media before this homestand to say, don't worry? Because we're all worried. We're all giving up. We're all thinking this season is already in the shits. (coughs) Sorry. Just doing my Met bullpen imitation. (laughs) Excuse me. Oh, God. What a brutal. Oh, let me rip Apple TV real quick. So, Friday night, I take my parents out for an anniversary dinner. Me and my sister, my wife, her husband, beautiful dinner. We come back, obviously, well after the game started. And I go to Apple TV Plus to start the game. So before the game, uh, before our dinner was over, I wanted to make sure that Apple TV Plus had a start the game from the beginning feature. So at about 7.05, I put the game on my phone just to see, is there a start from beginning feature? There was. Great. I stop it. I ignore it. I'm like, great. When we get home, me and my dad can watch the game. My phone, then when I click on it, has, you know how like when you're listening to something, whether it's on Spotify or Sirius or the Odyssey app, like you'll click your phone on and it'll show you like the play button. It'll show you maybe the last song you were listening to. It started to do that with Apple TV plus like I click on my phone and it shows me the score of the Met game. I'm like, well, what? I don't even have this on. So I freak out. Luckily it was five minutes after. So it's seven ten. reset my phone. I'm like, okay, that'll fix it. And every time I would touch my phone, it would tell me the freaking score. And I'm like, how the hell did this happen? So finally, after I got spoiled that it was 2 nothing, because I did see that it was 2 nothing Philadelphia Phillies. Remember, they scored two runs in the first inning, so it happened right away. I just threw my phone away. I shut it off. I handed it to my wife, and I said, keep this away from me. Apple TV Plus, what are we doing here? Like, what, what, what are we doing? Like, I appreciate that you have a start from the beginning feature, which, by the way, worked swimmingly, and I was able to watch the game from the beginning. But why did you hijack my phone and try to force feed the score down my throat? I don't get it. With that said, the broadcast was fine. It was nice to hear Wayne Randazzo and uh, whatever. They suck. This team blows. Sorry. How do you really feel, though? Ah, how do I feel? I feel stupid enough to go to Monday night's game at City Field, which I shouldn't, but I will because I'm a loyal, loyal schmuck. That's what I am. I should have a shirt that says, I'm a loyal schmuck. I think all of us Met fans who are still going to go to City Field and still follow this team on the road and still try to convince ourselves things are going to turn around, we should create a t shirt. It's called, We Are Loyal Schmucks. <laughs> Why Why did things – and we talked about this last podcast, so it's a redundant conversation, but I'm going to keep on asking it because it still amazes me how this team is this bad. Like everything that was supposed to go right last year did, everything's go, everything is just going wrong in every single game possible. It's a disgrace. And it's, it's not just the players. People blaming the players, which is terrible. It's it's, it's it's everybody. It's it's bull. It's management too. It's everything. It's everything. It's top to bottom. Every player, uh, the manager, the general manager, the coaching staff. There are very few guys that you can look at. You know, you could argue Pete Alonso, I guess, David Robertson, who are almost exonerated from the horror of this season. Everybody's got a little bit of blame, but I think when you look at this roster now, it's easier to understand how bad they are. Like when you look at this bullpen and how badly it is and how badly constructed it is, it's easier to understand. When you look at the rotation, which features, I mean, three guys, let's be honest. You've got Verlander and Scherzer, who you still run out there every five days and still can give you flashes of being pretty brilliant. Scherzer's been very good his last two starts. And Senga has mostly been good. 
So you got three starters. And after that, Carlos Carrasco is like not even a five-inning pitcher. He's a four-inning pitcher. And then your fifth spot right now is Tyler McGill, and now it's going to be David Peterson. Now, Jose Quintana's on the way back, and I think that's the Met assumption. Okay, Peterson will make a start. Ah, we'll kind of get away with it. Maybe he'll make another start. Maybe then it's Lucchese. And then before you know it, Jose Quintana's back. But right now, you're talking about a rotation with three starters. You're talking about a bullpen with no depth and an offense that even though the overall numbers are average, they will have games like Friday night where they do absolutely nothing. When you add it all together, you've got a baseball team that went from 101 wins to well on their way to, what, 90 losses? I mean, that's the pace they're at right now. But they do have four games coming up against the Brewers. Um, They got Verlander on Monday. Buck finally got the breakup Scherzer and Verlander. Congratulations on that. Peterson on Tuesday will get Kodai Senga on regular rest Wednesday. Hopefully he fares better than the first time he pitched on regular rest and then Max Scherzer. They got to they, they got they got to put together a winning streak. That's it. That's where we're at. The only hope to save this season is a stunning winning streak out of absolute nowhere. And if they could start that at City Field next week, maybe all those emails we got about how the season's over and everybody's got to be fired, maybe they start to change. But we do appreciate all those emails even if we didn't read them, we read them. And I'll try to start responding to them. I apologize. But thank you very much for listening. We'll give you a bonus, Rico, in the middle of the week. It's a four-game series, so I don't like to kind of wait till that series is over. So maybe it'll be a drive-home podcast. Maybe it'll be right in the middle. Uh, Maybe it'll just be a a recap of Buck Showalter being fired. Maybe there'll be a reason why we give you that extra pod, but there will be uh, coming up this week before the series ends on Thursday night. We appreciate you listening and downloading Rico Brody. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.